Hello, welcome to PhysioNote Sounds. This is the podcast for paediatric physiotherapists. I'm Gavin Spence, joining you today from Cambridge in the UK. Uh, Michalis, we are moving into the territory of the elite paediatric athlete. I don't know about you, but this is a subject I feel painfully ignorant of. How is your knowledge on that particular subject? I think very specific, Gavin, when, when it comes to hips. It's part of my practice. I see kind of athletes that have uh, hip pathologies, but... I think today we have a very special guest, uh, Angie Jackson, very experienced. He's just going to tell us a, a lot of things about practice and, and, and her teaching and, and her passions. And she certainly knows a lot about elite athletes. Uh, hi, Angie. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me on. Angie, it's a pleasure to have you on. I'm quite serious about my ignorance. I'm a paediatric orthopaedic surgeon and we have come late to the party to realise the particular demands of elite athletes in paediatrics, whereas it's become a specific interest of yours, I think. But for those listeners that don't know about your practice, can you just tell us a little bit about your practice now and how you got into this particular area? Yeah, absolutely. So I was the typical kid that probably played too many sports. I was a pretty good athlete, kind of turned my hand to anything. And then when I was 15, I developed probably what in retrospect was anterior knee pain, um, but a a rather over-enthusiastic surgeon at the time whipped all my medial menisci out. And as a result of which, by the time I was 17, I had OA in both my knees. So At that point, I was faced with, I could teach sport, but I couldn't play sport anymore. And the only thing I'd had anything, sort of a huge amount of in the last few years had been physiotherapy. And I kind of set about deciding that I wanted to understand why I'd got injured and how I could prevent kids from facing those same challenges and changes of direction that I ended up in. And so kind of a bit of the rest was history after that. Um, So I went to college and did the normal physio qualifications and when I came out I couldn't my knees weren't really that good so I couldn't really do the conventional rotations that you do in the UK of going through neuro and having to do lots of transfers so I moved out to Toronto and worked in a kids sports injury clinic for two years and that really really set me up it was a multidisciplinary clinic with orthopedic surgeons podiatrists and we had MRI scans and you've got to go back that that's over 30 years ago and so as a result of which, you, you know, we were very privileged to be seeing children as they got injured, scanning them. We knew what was wrong with them and then putting all the rehab places in. So that unit in Toronto, I mean, was that a particularly pioneering unit? Were there other units in the world doing that? Yeah, definitely. This wasn't even one of the biggest centres in Toronto because I did see some. I got to know some of the knee guys in Toronto while I was out there. And this was just a, what you might call a normal small town general hospital. But it was mainstream. There were, you know, there were physios based in GP surgeries. There were scanners. We had access to so much at that point. And when I came back to the UK, probably two or three years later, it was very much stepping back in time. So I set my own clinic up at that point and kind of paved the way to trying to find a way into supporting athletes as they went through their growth years. So how do you do that? Who do you need in your team? Where, where, where do you start with a project like that? <laughs> So I had myself, I was in A&E at one of the big teaching hospitals in Manchester. I had a colleague who was with me. We were pretty good at doing that first line diagnosis. So the two of us would do evening clinics. And then that got to be a third member of the team. So we had three physios who were all MSK based. And then one of the girls who'd been running the unit at the local private hospital wanted to come out into private practice. And she had a more kind of more generalized physio approach. 
So she joined us and we became a more diverse team, which was brilliant because she'd got way more expertise on some of the neuro stuff that, and the rheumatology stuff that rocks up. And even though kids are athletes, they still get all this other stuff. So we became a much broader base. And then we got a podiatrist on board and started to build those links up with the local doctors and things and created our own little unit. And then that just grew and grew and grew over the years to where we got to last year when I sold out. You mentioned about the medical input. So would these be orthopaedic surgeons or sports medicine specialists? And what what are the different skill sets that you get from those groups? So in the beginning, it was very much that we had a great knee surgeon, a great hip surgeon. They were all adult surgeons who had an interest in kids. But I'm not aware that I ever met any paediatric orthopaedic consultants in those early days. We do now. But primarily because very few kids that I see need surgery, so the type of work I'm doing is is pretty much non-surgical, so it's much more diagnostic, getting the right stuff in place. We tend now pretty much exclusively, I would say, for our mainstream apophysitis, stress fractures, those sorts of things, we would basically use a sports medicine doctor. A, we've got good access, and B, they'll run up the bloods that are much more generic to picking up some of the things that we want to to factor into our rehab. So we generally use the sports medicine team up in Manchester, which is brilliant. We've got a concussion doctor there as well for when we need to bring that in. And then we've got a spinal paediatric orthopaedic doctor that we work with if we've got a big scoliosis or a particularly big spondylolisthesis. And then we've got a really, really good at the kids' hospital. She does some private work. We've got a good orthopaedic doctor there if it looks to be more of your adolescence, sort of maybe Sufis and some of the other stuff that we see. Angie, what is your source of referrals? Is, are they self-referred or is it GPs who refer to you or is it the sports medicine doctors you work with? Probably all of the above. But over the years, how did it build up? I did a lot of talks. For me, I guess the prime, if you said to me, what was my USP, then... I believe that we can't send any athlete back to doing the sport that they were doing without educating them. So if I'm going to ever prevent any of these from happening, then a big part of my role had to be education of the athlete, the coach, the parents. And so I spent a lot of time, still do, going into schools, clubs, uh, national governing bodies, and I do free talks for all of the, those groups trying to enlighten them into some of the small controllables that they can put in place to try and reduce their risk of injury. We can never prevent them, but we can you know, certainly reduce that profile into a safer place. So effectively, I was doing a lot of education. So if I went into a school and basically talked about all of the different things that we might be able to do, or I'm the Cheshire cricket physio, so I talk to all the county cricket parents once a year, I still do that then after that you're going to have a lineup of 10 and 12 kids going oh actually I've got back pain I've got this I've got that and so by giving away that free education not only was it the right thing ethically to do but actually it was a massive marketing tool. What sort of interventions are you talking about here to try and prevent injury obviously education is part of it and you said that you would go to an institution and you would assess how how they're doing things and you would then work out a program of ways in which future injury might be prevented. Can you give us an idea of what sort of areas you'd be addressing? Would it be the environment? Would it be the way that the kids do the sport? Would it be the equipment they use or or all of these things? So all really good points. Um, 
if I kind of went through the, the sort of little infographic that I use, the Royal Yachting Association, who I've been heavily involved with over the years uh, due to one of my kids sailing internationally, use a mantra called control the controllables, which I think has been used across many sports. And so for me, the things that are under an athlete or parent control would be things like uh, how much they eat. So one of the things that we can readily address is that if a child's not getting enough decent quality as well as the volume of, of calories and energy intake, then they're at much greater risk of a stress fracture. So we know that if the body starts to feel as though it's never seeing another meal again, it will shut down some of the reproductive systems and, and affect the hormonal levels, and that has an impact on bone health. So we would look towards just encouraging good nutrition, a balanced nutrition. What we certainly see these days is a lot of kids following fads like, shall we try the fasting diet? Shall we try giving up carbohydrates? And of course, within children, that's a nightmare. So going in with factual information that's appropriate to the child rather than allowing parents to influence what their kids might be doing based on what they're doing can be a powerful message. So we've got calorie, we've got protein is really associated with overtraining and injury. So if a low protein intake, so we're kind of trying to really, really turn around, making sure they're getting breakfast, because probably about 20% of the kids in every audience I speak to don't eat breakfast at all, never mind protein in their breakfast. And that window for eating protein in the morning, if we can get 20 grams of protein in them in the morning, not only emphasises the benefits of the training they did the day before, but in addition to that, it's going to give them some protective health for repair and building muscle. So that's kind of nutrition. Um, we know that lack of sleep is hugely associated with the risk of injury and illness. So we'll look at trying to encourage kids and explain to them the impact of blue light at night and how important it is for them to... If I tend to kind of, instead of talking about injury risk, if I'm talking to kids, it'll always be about the benefit of whether they're going to be faster, fitter, stronger. And with sleep, it's about that's the time when you embed your skills. So if you've learned a new skill in the day, then that's when you start to turn it into the hard drive that it's always going to be there for you in the future. So we kind of always turning it around to kids to kind of make them see the benefit of it, as opposed to just talking to the parents about how they can keep little Johnny or Joe safe. Is it true, the received wisdom, that elite sport in the paediatric age group is being played at a higher and higher level? We are taught in the orthopaedic world that we're seeing more injuries that you would normally see in the adult world now in amongst paediatric athletes. But I wonder if that's really true or if we're just perhaps more aware of it than, or, than perhaps, perhaps we were in the past. Or perhaps we're doing more diagnostic. We have more diagnostic tools. We have lower threshold to ask for MRI scans or x-rays or blood tests to make those diagnoses. Maybe we wouldn't do that, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago. Yeah, I think you've both got really good points there. I think my, let's go back to, to how many uh, lumbar stress fractures, pars interarticularis stress fractures do I diagnose a month now? There's, a, there's two sides to that is, you know, locally I get this sort of dubbed this little nickname of the lumbar stress fracture queen because... I'm a county cricket physio that I've been doing it for donkey's years. I'm going to see more of them. What happens is that every little kid that gets a stress fracture in Cheshire probably winds up on my table. So I perceive that I'm seeing more of them. But I don't think I am. I just think that my caseload is biased. My threshold now for imaging varies. I'm pretty confident of when I've got a diagnosis right and the management doesn't change anyway. So I'm only scanning now 
when I'm worried that there may be a slip or a, you know, a big injury, a bilateral injury that's maybe not going to heal as efficiently or if the kid won't actually listen to me. So it's a, it's a real mixed dilemma, I think, whereby, yes, we have definitely got more kids. I think specialisation is one of the things that probably we should, we should address. So what we do know is that if we can delay that sport specialisation, and by that we mean playing one sport for eight months or more in a pretty intense way, and so if they're doing that at the expense of other sports, then we call it an early specialisation or a single specialisation. Now, what's definitely known is that that increases injury risk, and we've got little tennis players who are very much uh, little footballers, who are playing so much tennis or so much football in these academies that definitely it's at the expense of other sports. If we can delay that until they're maybe post-puberty, that 14, 15, we know that playing a diversity of sports gives them a much broader base for their athleticism, their skills, teaches more muscles to do different stuff and therefore protects them. But also, actually, interestingly, they, they seem to achieve more gold medals at the international stage if they delay that specialisation. So I think we need to look at whether they play at a higher standard or whether they're specialising, whether they just train more. But I mean, you look at how many hours I did. I did a zillion hours. So I don't think that was anything different to my kids. But we have a whole lot more knowledge. My kids didn't run around not having any rest days. My kids didn't run around not having protein in the morning. So we have that much more awareness. I actually think it's safer now than when I was little. Interesting. This idea about diversifying the sports that you're in, do you come up against resistance to that idea? And if so, who does it come from? From the kids, from the coaches? <laughs> the mother. <laughs> the parents. <laughs> ah, yeah, well, as a, as a fellow paediatric practitioner, I can understand that. <laughs> I'm being facetious, but I think it's a dynamic we don't see in the adult world. So we have coaches and we have over-enthusiastic coaches in the adult practice. Um, we have some that make decisions that are more based around their own careers rather than their athletes. Within the kids' world, within a school environment, depends on the school they're in, if the coach's remit, which we do see in a lot of schools, is that unless you win championships, your job's on the line, then we have a dichotomy with the coach who's there going, well, I need my best players to play. But yeah, actually, is that in the best interest of the kid who's hobbling around with Osgood Schlatters and basically should be probably having a much lower load, but we need that kid. You've then got the pressure that you don't often have in other situations where their own teammates are going, but without you, little Johnny, we're not going to win. So the kid themselves feels highly pressured to play. And ironically, when they're playing school sport, a lot of these very elite kids have got to do the job of 10 other players that are mediocre. So what we see in an international stage is that they only have to share 10% of the load because the other 10 players are really good. But if they are playing at a school level, then they're having to run around a zillion miles an hour covering not only centre-forward, centre-back, whether we're playing rugby, whether we're playing football. They're doing a lot more work. So I think we need to be very clear that we understand where the pressures on the athlete are. The parents, I think it's that they get a bad press. Most parents are interested in the long-term health of their child, but they get a little bit mixed up with the fact that if they don't make the squad selection this year and they're aged 11, then the career's over and you're kind of going, well, let's just sit on it a bit. And the figure that I usually use is only 20% of kids who represent their country at under 18 
ever go on to become full internationals. And when I flip that round to them and say, so that means 80% of internationals never represented their country as a kid, they go, oh. And then we look at the whole journey. Well, you've only been playing sport for three years. You've got another 10 before you even come close to international level. So we've got tons of time to build these skills. And we try and just turn it all round all the time and take the panic out of it. I've been recently in the London HIP meeting. That was about a month ago. And um, the, uh, the session I attended was about hip preservation surgery and specifically about femoral thumbnail impingement. So one of the very interesting talks was in adolescence and they were saying that the latest evidence shows that kids, in order not to have FAI, which is very common in male adolescents, is that they only do one sport, no more than one sport. And they, they, they found a kind of formula that they need to have a maximum of three times a week of training, which is going to be like an hour and a half or something. This is specifically for FAI, but is this something that you, with your experience, you've, you've noticed in other sports or does this apply to adolescents that you've treated in the past? Um, I think FAI is a really interesting one because we're seeing it go through phases. So we're seeing where we all jumped in and operated and that seemed like a really good idea and then we'll all sit on the fence and go, maybe not. So I think we need to look at a whole ton of factors that I think are relevant. So within the cricketing world, what we know happens is that if the little kid does a ton of throwing, they get a a relative rotation of the humeral growth plate and that can give them an alteration in total range of their shoulder. So they're getting like a little bit of almost like a gapping of the lateral growth plate. So they get external rotation looks huge and the internal rotation looks comparatively less to the other side. But their total range of movement is the same. If we then compare that to the hip, what we see in ice um, hockey players, so they, and I think also in soccer players who kick with the inside of their foot. So if you've got a, a sport that's very much based around the actual technique is in hip external or foot turnout position, then inevitably you're going to get that same torsional strain where that femoral head is rotating. And I think what we've got to be really careful of is that we're not looking at the affected limb and saying, oh yeah, they've got lack of internal rotation, when they're either sat there with such big excessive external rotation, the total range is the same, or alternatively that they've got antiversion on that side and it's just an anatomical variant. So I think we need to be really, really careful about what the kid's done to that hip and whether in fact it's just their normal anatomy changing and trying to toughen up in response to the stresses they place upon it. And is it just actually that they were doing too much too soon and all the factors I was talking about with protein intake, with low calorie intake, there's a whole link to perfectionism and pain thresholds at the moment that's coming into the literature. You know, we've got to look and say, well, are these FAIs no more than what's in effect like a bit of a stress reaction in a a lower back is it anything different to an Osgood Schlatter's but it happens to be in the acetabulum and is if we go in and intervene is it going to actually leave this kid better off or is it actually going to destabilize the capsule and cause all sorts of issues down the line so I think we've got to be really careful that we we really understand whether those FAIs be they cam or pincer or whatever are they actually the real cause of the pain or are they incidental findings that was my rant, sorry. That's, that's, that, can, can I tell you, that, that was a brilliant answer to my question. I, I deal with a lot of FAI, both conservative and, of course, surgical. I really need to uh, probably go back to the podcast and listen to that again and just go through my, my approach. 
when it comes to that. that was brilliant. I can send you my checklist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Angie, can I ask you, you, you mentioned Osgood Schlatter there. That's a, yeah. that's a real common condition. And um, we don't treat them surgically, obviously. We are taught this is an overuse phenomenon. The treatment is rest. Now, that's fine for a lot of kids, but it's not fine for elite athletes. It's no use telling somebody who has ambitions or is even in an international squad that tough, you know, you've just got to rest. Do you have a different approach? How do you manage that kind of problem? I think on the basis of the fact that you're absolutely right, it's generally seen as an overuse type pathology. So therefore, by the virtue of that is that it's only going to be in what I call active kids. So whether they're elite or whether they're not, they're going to be sporty, jumpy, what I call my Tigger syndromes. They just bounce from one activity to the next. So I don't think you can get pretty much Osgood Schlatters if you're a couch potato that's, you know, pretty much into uh, PlayStation. So on the virtue of the fact that all these kids are active, if we get them to truly rest, then my belief is they get weaker and they're more deconditioned. So the way in which I approach all of these kids is to look at what they've done for the last month and how does that bring them to today. So if we were to take a very easy example, let's go to cricket. We have got a situation where this weekend the kids will start bowling outdoors for the first time. If during that winter build-up over the last three months they haven't bowled at all, it won't matter that within cricket we say that they, you know, an under-15 can bowl 12 overs tomorrow and supposedly they're going to be safe. But if they haven't been bowling 10, 11 overs in the past few weeks, they're by no means prepared. If we looked at the history of every single Osgood Schlatters, every single severs, every single avulsion injury that we see, stress fracture, the, the diagnosis is irrelevant. When you really get down to the nitty gritty, the question is, so what's changed? And so we know that there's a spike in these apophyseal injuries in September. So I have a joke that we staff the clinic on the 21st of September and the 21st of January. And that's because it follows the two periods of inactivity in a kid's life. They go back to school, and if we take either the cricket season that's about to start, the rate for stress fractures goes up on the second week of May. So we're going to see a zillion stress fractures two weeks after the start of the season. We're going to see a zillion severs and Osgood schlatters and avulsions in September. There's research papers on it now. So, you know, what we need to think about is that whatever the actual injury per se... What we've got to really say is, so what's changed? What has been a spike in activity? Have you changed the amount? Have you changed the type? So have we added in two sports where they overlap? Have we had a sudden training camp? Pre-season training is an absolute disaster zone. Sports camps for kids just before they go back to school, disaster zone when they've not done anything. And yet they're all seen as this great model that we use in adult sport, but they've been building up for weeks. We think it's fine to just dump every kid in every single session, week one of the school, school year. So for me, I, you know, it's a real thing about understanding what triggered it, because I don't think they need to, to completely rest. I think that just deconditions them. And if you think about the work by Tim Gabbett and his crew, it tells us that whatever the last four weeks prepares us for what we can do this week. So if we set them to doing absolutely nothing... Well, we're starting at an even lower place than when they got injured. So we're kind of making that upward trajectory even harder. So what we tend to do is we'll bring them down so that they can work at anything up to a two out of 10 pain and keep it manageable. And during that time, we'll be doing, if we go to Osgood Schlatter's, loads of isometric quads. And we'll find a range where they can do it, be that in extension, be it in flexion. 
and they'll be kicking the desk underneath the, the school table, like working isometrically against the other leg, sort of on and off during the day. And we'll do tons of work on their sort of core stability, getting the glutes working, getting the hip rotators working. So for us, it's about we'll drop them down to a point that they can cope with whilst we build them back up again. And then we get them to use their phones if they're really, really acute. Some of these like fat pad syndromes we see in the, the girls, the Hoffa's fat pads, then basically we'll have them with a, uh, their phones or a, a tracker watch. And we actually count the number of steps and make sure that it's not peaking and troughing, just like I do with an OA knee. Does the same principle apply for back pain in the elite athletes? Because I know that's a particular interest of yours. So the spike in activity, if you said to me, like, does too much sport cause injuries in kids? I'd say no, there's no logic to that. Because what we definitely know is that if you wanted to do an ultra marathon, you could train yourself up to doing that. And if we do more sport, it makes us stronger. So what breaks kids is too much too soon. So what we're going to see over the next few weeks in these cricketers is that they go from barely bowling to bowling loads and they may start tennis which is another extension based sport at the same time and then they may start throwing in athletics at school and so what we know in low back pain is that in the I think it's 40% of those that presented in, a, in an A&E department in the states 40% of the, the kids presenting with low back pain were spondylolysis now those ended up in A&E I think that figure is probably as high as 80% of kids with low back pain if they're active. And this is the caveat. So if you've got low back pain in a young person and they're an athlete, you're pretty much, unless it's something weird and wonderful and, you know, some of the stuff that we probably don't have time to talk about. But if you've got a kid who's got an extension-based sport, they've had a spike in activity, certainly if it's unilateral back pain to start, and it has that pattern of, on, off, on, off, it's a spondylolysis, stress fracture, bone stress reaction, whatever you want to call it, until proven otherwise. The sooner we get them out, this is where I want to really kind of get on the bandwagon with education, is if we picked up every kid that got a kind of bit of backache and said to the world, this is not normal, kids should not have back pain when they bowl, throw, kick, and we pulled them out for two weeks and we started to do some conditioning and we changed their loading, then they're not going to progress to being a stress fracture. So when you ask every single kid, and we did this yesterday with a, a young child who came in and his mum said, no, 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 it, it came on on this date. And I went and I turned to the kid and said, did you not have any niggles just before, just like a bit of something going on beforehand? He goes, oh, yeah, for about like maybe last season. But it always went away before. And so when you actually really ask these kids, the episodes are, it was a bit niggly, it was a bit niggly. Those are the bone bruises. Then the body catches up and says, oh, cool, I can adapt to that now, I'm coping. But then they suddenly do too much too soon, coupled with usually a bit of a vitamin D deficiency, and boom, that's a stress fracture. Now I'm faced with three and six months out of sport as opposed to three and six weeks. So that is why you are so keen on the prevention side and <laughs> the education say. side. <laughs> We have um, to make it so that every child, every coach, every parent recognises that low back pain is not sinister in a child, but it's so reversible that if we just pulled them out in that early stage, but I think that's true of your Osgood Schlatters and your, your, your Sebers, you know, just back them off a bit. Whatever you've done in the last two weeks has been too much for your little body. Back them off a bit and then we move forward again. 
Well, Angie, I, I have to say I, I consider myself well and truly educated. I, I think I have to rethink my practice on several levels here. Michaelis, are you, are you having the same kind of feeling? I think I've already said that. Uh, Angie's reply on FAI certainly was uh, quite unique. Let, let's put it that way. It just gave me a different perspective, which uh, is what I like with all the courses and the podcasts uh, we're doing coming with Orthopedic Research UK and physiotherapists. It's, a, it's like a new uh, new world there, especially when it comes to elite athletes like Angie. Angie's very experienced, of course, and you know she can talk to us like for hours about all these things. Certainly, yeah, we're all going to benefit from this and all our uh, listeners. Thank, yeah, definitely. Th- thanks very much for that, Angie. My absolute pleasure. It's been fun. It's been great fun having you on, Angie. We, we really appreciate it. I hope to those of you listening in, you've appreciated it too. It's, it's certainly a subject I know a lot of you are interested in. Angie, once again, many thanks to you. Michaelis, thanks for your input as always. And thanks to our listeners. We're looking forward to having your company on another podcast in the future. Thanks a lot. Goodbye. Goodbye.